you've got your Bibles, you can uh, please turn with me to Lamentations uh, chapter 3. Many people uh, believe that Lamentations was written by uh, the prophet Jeremiah. Lamentations is made up of uh, five poems of lament. And if you're to read through uh, the book of Lamentations, you'd recognize that uh, in these five poems of lament, they represent some of the weightiest expressions of grief that you will find uh, throughout the entire Bible. And chapter 3, which we're going to look at uh, today, is written like an acrostic poem in Hebrew. So each set of three verses represents one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And we're going to be looking at uh, the first half of this chapter this evening. So Lamentations 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He is driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He's made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He's made my paths crooked. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I've become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He's filled me with bitterness. He's sated me with wormwood. He's made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord's good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. 
Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word, this part of scripture, we do acknowledge it's a difficult one, it's a weighty one. We can feel the weight of the prophet's lament. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand it aright. And Lord, I pray that you would specifically help us to understand and receive this passage so that when we are walking through the valley of despair, we will have words to speak and we will have a place to turn our eyes that we might have hope. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening I want to ask the question, how should we as Christians respond when our world is turned upside down? How do we respond when someone we love dies or when there's a diagnosis of cancer or Alzheimer's or when we've lost some ability that we've long uh, cherished? Where do we go when a uh, appreciated relationship is suddenly fractured or the boss tells us that they're eliminating our position. This is an experience, uh, the experience of our world falling apart that all of us in different ways and to different degrees will face. It's the experience of the uh, bottom falling out and the ground giving way beneath our feet. It's shocking. It's uh, confusing. It's that disturbing sense that all of the assumptions that we had about life and about the future, they've just crumbled in a moment. And now you're living in a different world, a world where things will never be the same. Well, I want us to look to the scriptures together this evening to see the way forward through these type of moments, whatever they might be for you. When our world has fallen apart, where are we going to go? Is there a way through the darkness? Because as we turn to uh, the book of Lamentations, we're going to find someone who understands us in those moments. Because this is a book that's written by someone who's not a stranger to catastrophe. He writes with all of the realism of a fellow sufferer. And so our passage is going to show us that though calamity happens under God, our path to hope is ultimately found in God. Or if we're to put it another way, though our grief comes from God, our relief will come from God as well. So when our world comes apart, the path from despair to hope is going to involve three things. And that's our outline. First, a lamenting to God, and then a remembering of God, and then a waiting upon God. So a lamenting to God, a remembering of God, and then a waiting Upon God. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that Jerusalem uh, was an important place for God's people in the Old Testament. And I know that Pastor Jonathan has been preaching through the book of Nehemiah, so uh, this is especially going to be uh, fresh in your mind, knowing the heightened significance that this place had uh, for God's people. Uh, Jerusalem had come to occupy a central place in God's work in the world to redeem and restore a creation that had fallen into sin. So in one sense, Jerusalem uh, came to be representative of God's chosen people and God's plan to save the world. And at its peak, Jerusalem was a glorious place. 
In fact, we're told um, elsewhere in Scripture that when the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon in Jerusalem, she had her breath taken away by all that she saw and heard there. It was a secure city. It was a city that had walls running around its perimeter to protect her. At its center was this magnificent temple, this place where God dwelt specially with his people on earth. And the people of God would regularly flock to Jerusalem to celebrate the appointed feasts, the worship days to the Lord. Maybe you can imagine the excitement of of pilgrims streaming in to the city of Jerusalem for these holy days. One of Israel's songs, Psalm 87, celebrates the privileged place that Jerusalem had among God's people. It was the city that God had founded. It was the place that God loved in a unique way. Glorious things are, are spoken of you, O city of God. Well, it's a different scene when we come to the book of Lamentations. This is a book written after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And Lamentations' first two chapters described a city that had been brought to utter ruin. The city's desolate, its streets are empty. Many of its inhabitants have been taken into exile. Those that remain are going hungry. Uh, The walls that once uh, kept the city secure are gone. The gates have been torn off. The enemies of God's people are laughing at their misery. And there's bodies everywhere. If I were to give you a, a picture of what this would have been like, perhaps I would have you think about uh, the, the, the traumatic scene uh, after September 11th. Right? The destruction is catastrophic. It's shocking. How could this happen here? Or maybe you might think of, of the pictures coming out of the war in Ukraine. We see cities that have been hollowed out by bombs. There's rubble everywhere. There's people who are wandering around. They're displaced. They're confused. They're hungry. They're cold. And we see and smell the the sights of death everywhere. That's what Jerusalem felt like in this moment. Jerusalem was supposed to be God's city. And so we're left wondering, how could this happen? It's so overwhelming, it's enough to make the prophet physically ill. He says this in Lamentations 2.11. My eyes are worn out from weeping. My stomach is in knots. My heart is poured out on the ground. And that brings us to this evening's passage, chapter 3. The prophet is continuing to pour out his heart in lament. And for the first 18 verses, he's giving a pain-filled expression to his experience of national calamity. As we read read those first 18 verses, maybe you noticed the most common word. It's he. Verse after verse begins speaking of he. He has driven and brought me into darkness. Verse 2. He has made my flesh and skin waste away. Verse 4. He has besieged and enveloped me. Verse 5. On and on it goes. No name is stated, but the subject is God. And this only compounds the pain because it's God who is seemingly turned on his people in his city. 
Sure, it was the Babylonian army that had come through, uh, but they were just the instrument. The prophet acknowledges that it was God whose hand ultimately dealt the blow. Now, this is consistent with the Bible's teaching elsewhere. God tells the prophet Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, we might not know why God does certain things, but we know that he's in control of all of his creatures and all of their, their actions. This is what we refer to as the doctrine of God's providence. Now, on the one hand... Only in a universe that's under the providence of a personal God is there any possibility for hope and despair. Because if God does not rule over and order all things, then there's an an, an element of uncertainty and chance that remains in all things. If there's no God or no God who orders the events of the world, then every hardship that befalls us uh, 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 is just a matter of bad cosmic luck. And we can have no hope that things will ever get better. We, I mean, we might hope, sure, maybe the cosmic dice turn out differently, but that's just wishful thinking. In a world without providence, we're left with the cruelty of chance. Is there any hope for the future? Well, not really in any certain sense. But on the other hand, I think that we need to acknowledge that there is still something personal and painful about God's providence at times. One preacher likened it to a trusting infant being brought to the, the doctor's office for uh, their first shots. I remember this happening with our uh, oldest uh, uh, child. Before the cry, right, they had been perfectly content. Uh, the needle goes in and suddenly there's this pained expression uh, that comes on her face as she receives the needle as if to say, Dad, how could you? Well, maybe that best describes the prophet's lament here. How could you? Now, if Jeremiah is the author of these laments, he knows the answer. This particular tragedy was an act of judgment, which God had foretold would happen to Judah for their longstanding disobedience. They had broken covenant with God, and there had been consequences warned and now consequences delivered. Now, I just want to say as a side note, it's very important to note here that not all tragedies are a result of direct uh, personal sin. Uh, Job was a righteous sufferer. We can think of the blind man that Jesus heals in, in John chapter 9. We want to be careful in making those connections. In this case, though, it was in response to Israel's sin. But the ruin of Jerusalem wasn't, strictly speaking, a personal tragedy. It was a national tragedy. But though it was a national tragedy or a corporate tragedy, the prophet so closely associates himself with God's people, he personalizes this grievous event. It's like it's happened directly to him. Though the fault's not with him, he feels it deeply. He shares in the people's misery. And in his expression of grief, the prophet expresses himself with such vivid language that perhaps some of us could relate to it. Maybe we've felt these very feelings at times. The prophet's been driven into darkness without any light, verse 2. 
In verse 6, he says he's living in darkness. It's like the sun has been extinguished from view. He's in the darkness, and darkness confuses. We don't know where to go. We don't know the way out. When we're in the dark, we freeze because we can't make sense of our surroundings. He feels lost. Now, this is closely related to feeling trapped. Maybe you've been in some trial and you felt like there was no way out. You were in some painful circumstance and there was no switch that you could just flip that would suddenly make things feel better to allow you to get around the pain. Well, that's how the prophet felt here. He felt surrounded by bitterness and trouble and despair and he felt like God had built a wall around him to hem or to trap him in. He feels like God's attacking him. Verses 10 through 12. God felt like a fearsome predator stalking him. In verse 12, the prophet says, It felt like God had put a bullseye on him to use him for target practice. And the blows keep coming and coming and coming, one after the other. Life's lost all of its sweetness. It's become bitter. He makes this point in verse 5, 15, and 19. Wormwood and gall were both bitter plants, unpleasant to the taste. And the pain of his circumstances was difficult for the prophet to swallow. And all this leads to him despairing of life itself in verses 17 and 18. He has no peace. Happiness, he says, is like a long-forgotten dream. All of the color has been drained out of his world. His strength fails him. And hope feels like it's withered away. The prophet gives expression to the dark valley of despair. Uh, If you've ever been there before, or maybe you're there now, perhaps it's helpful for you to have someone in the Bible who puts into words your experience. To know that there's been godly people who have been where you are now or where you've been before. Who have thought these thoughts and who have cried out these uh, feelings in this way. to, To know that you're not alone. In fact, far from such cries offending God, he's put them here so that you would have prayers to pray. He's put them here so that you would know that sometimes prayers of faith are are prayed with tears in our eyes, even as we have anguish on our hearts. What we notice in this lament is that there is a movement from despair to hope. And because we've been in the valley of despair with the prophet, we know he isn't just going to give us the platitudes of someone who's been untouched by tragedy. This isn't someone who can just pretend that things are just going to be fine. He's sitting in the devastation. He can see the ruins. He can hear the cries. And yet we see in verse 21 and following a path to hope. What's the bridge that takes us from despair to hope? How do we find hope amidst our honest laments as we see expressed in verses 1 to 18? Well, it's by an act of remembering. And that's our second point, a remembering of God. Now, the prophet's heart is understandably consumed by tragedy. Verse 20 tells us he could hardly think of anything else. But then, then he recalls something. The Hebrew grammar here is significant. It's a causative verb, meaning that it's active. It's intentional. There's an intentional force at work here to bring something about. 
The prophet's not saying that some thought just sort of happened to pop into his head. No, it's, it's much more intentional. It's like uh, maybe when you uh, go down into your basement and you go rummaging around for your favorite sweatshirt. You have to go downstairs and you go and get it. It might take some work, it might take some searching, but you go and you bring it back upstairs and you put it in your closet. Well, that's the sense here. The prophet exerts uh, himself to bring a truth to mind. He doesn't forget or ignore the tragic reality around him, but he adds a new thought to this difficult occasion. But what is it that he recalls? Well, we see the answer in verses 22 and 20, uh, to 24. He recalls the revealed character of God. God's steadfast love, his abundant mercies, his faithfulness. Now, I say the revealed character of God because these weren't just some random aspects of who God is that are being uh, recalled. Like he just sort of drew at random a bunch of things that that, uh, were sort of in a hat. No, he specifically calls to mind things that God had said about himself when he entered into covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. You might remember when God met with uh, the people, with Moses rather, on Mount Sinai, God identified himself by saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Our characteristics that we've read in our passage. These truths about God were at the heart of God's dealing with his people. So the prophet calls to mind what God had said concerning himself. That God is merciful towards sinners. That he's abounding in steadfast love. That he's faithful. That he always keeps his promises. That he's dependable. It's not just that God is these things. It's that he's these things in unrelenting, infinite measure. Maybe you've had the misfortune of going to a restaurant and ordering something only to have the apologetic server come back and saying, you know, I'm sorry, we're actually out of avocado salad or I would never order an avocado salad, but whatever it is that you order at a restaurant, right? And I'm tempted to say, well, why is that on on your uh, menu? Well, God has published that in himself is a fullness of steadfast love and mercy such that though his children would come to him a million times, he would never have to come out and sheepishly say, I'm sorry, I don't actually have any steadfast love left. Or we're out of mercy. And what's more, he promises that his mercies will be fresh and suited to each day. And there's an encouragement in this too. God doesn't have stale mercies. He doesn't give his children the same mercies that he gave them last week. Some people don't like leftovers. I think leftovers are just fine. Well, there are no leftovers when it comes to God's mercies. They are new Every morning, he gives you the mercies that you need for today. And when tomorrow comes, he'll give you the mercies that you need for tomorrow. Why? Because he has promised to be the portion of all who trust in him. God's my possession, the prophet cries out. Verse 24 is what connects God's mercies to my sufferings. It can say that I I can expect that God's love and his mercy comes to meet me in the rubble because he has given himself to me. His benefits are mine because he is mine. 
And there's an important lesson in this for us. When calamity strikes, we need more than just insipid well wishes. We need divinely revealed truth. We need a Bible in our hands and in our prayers and in our songs. Because when the prophet goes searching in his memory for some anchor amidst this unthinkable tragedy, he clings to what God has said is true about himself. Though his world has fallen apart, this is true north. The prophet says, this is the fixed point on the horizon that will bring me safely to shore. Where else can we go? We recently had a very tragic circumstance occur in our congregation. A 19-year-old member of our church was killed in a uh, workplace accident just a couple weeks ago. And this was the second son that this family had lost due to an accident. Two beautiful boys buried. Can you imagine? I mean, what do you say to the parents? What do you say to uh, the brother and sister who have been left behind? Well, as a church, we came together and we prayed for and with this family, and we simply opened up our Bibles to pray. We didn't have anything else to say. We resolved through tears to speak back to God what he has said concerning himself, what's true. That's got to be our anchor. And therefore, the prophet says, I have hope. I have a confident expectation for the future of deliverance, that the God who has afflicted us will not cast us off entirely. He will not allow this story to end in ruin. That God is not done acting, but he will indeed act according to his never-run-out steadfast love. Hope, however, entails waiting or entails expectation. We don't hope for what we already have. And waiting is what we see in verses 25 to 30. And this is our third point. The prophet laments, he remembers, and now he waits. Verse 25 to 30, help us to see that moving from hopelessness to hope is not the same thing as moving from problem to solution. In these verses, the sufferer still sits Alone, He still endures derision and mistreatment in verse 30. His laying hold of truth about God doesn't make those hard things instantly disappear. Sometimes God does grant relief or deliverance, but the move to hope is less about an immediate change in our circumstances or even in our pain, and it's more about a change in our disposition toward the future. It means that in affliction, I can look ahead and I can see the sure promise of better days. The prophet waits for the Lord. In his affliction, he's humbled, but he endures. Now, waiting is hard, though, isn't it? Even in the most mundane waiting, we get restless and impatient. Occasionally, I have appointments in which uh, the person I'm supposed to meet with isn't there at the time that we're scheduled to meet. And so I'll wait for a few minutes and then maybe for a few more minutes, check my phone, right? How long am I going to do this? I wonder to myself. Well, it's a really trivial example, but perhaps that gets at the question of the waiting sufferer. Only it's not how long am I going to keep doing this. Rather, it's how long can I keep doing this? Will I always feel this way? Will I carry this hurt forever? How can I keep waiting? How can I keep facing tomorrow when she won't be there? When he won't be there? 
or when my body just doesn't work the way it once did, or when I've lost everything, when my future is in tatters. Once more, the prophet takes us back to the doctrine of God in verses 31 and 32. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. I have hope and I can wait because this is what I know concerning God. Whatever my experience, the Lord does not cast off his children forever. He may discipline us, he may sanctify us, he may test us, but he will never forget about us forever. Matthew Henry, the old commentator, put it this way, though we may be cast down, we are never, never cast off, not ultimately. Yes, God causes grief. He ordains suffering. Often we don't know why he does it, but he does. But where he afflicts his children, he promises always, 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 always to send his mercy in its wake. And as if it's to make sure that he, or for us that the cure would be greater than the wound, he says that his compassion or, or his mercy is applied in a manner that's consistent with the abundance of his love. Right? That word is there on purpose. But let's dig just a little bit deeper. Why? Why should we expect that mercy will follow grief? Well, at the very center of this poem which lies at the very center of the book of Lamentations, we have our answer. Verse 33. You can look at it. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, God does not inflict pain on us just for kicks. He's not like the cruel boy on the sidewalk burning ants through his magnifying glass just because he can. Though we maybe feel like that at times, maybe like there's a target on our back or something like that, God never afflicts for pleasure. Theologians like Jonathan Edwards have spoken of God's strange work and his natural work. His strange work and his natural work. Now there's some limitation to this language, I, I acknowledge that, but Edwards and these other thinkers are trying to communicate that God does not send mercy and he does not send grief upon his people in the same way. Mercy comes forth from God readily, but trouble comes forth slowly. He's said to be slow to anger, but he's eager to forgive. Micah 7.18, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. And yet we read elsewhere, he doesn't delight even in the death of the wicked. Brothers and sisters, God does not afflict you from his heart. Now the payoff of this requires us to backtrack a little bit. Because God does not afflict from the heart, we can be sure that mercy will follow trouble. And because mercy will follow trouble, we can know that he will not cast off forever. God's character will not allow that to happen. God is bound by his very nature to draw his suffering children to his breast to comfort them. So therefore, we can wait in hope in affliction. Now you might be saying, wait a second, you are letting God off the hook way too easily here. You admit that God causes 
these awful afflictions. They're from him. And we're just supposed to take his word that he's loving and merciful and he doesn't afflict us from the heart. He doesn't do that gladly. It doesn't that sort of feel like trusting an art thief with the keys to the art gallery? Why should we trust God just because he, he says so? I think that's an understandable question. Well, on the one hand, we might just say we should trust God because he's God, because he says so. God's truth. He's not a man uh, that he should lie or a son of man that he changes his mind. So, of course, we should trust him. But knowing our needs, knowing our weakness, God gives us more. He gives us a case study. He gives us a model, a proof of concept. Because there's another sympathetic prophet who identifies himself with the sufferings of his people. One who enters the sufferings of his people so that he stands with them in it. Even as the prophet could speak these words, these words could just as easily have come from the lips of our Lord Jesus as he endured the agonies of divine judgment on the cross. Consider the words of verses 1 to 18 on the lips of Jesus. I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. There, having identified himself with his people, Jesus is hung up on the cross to die in the darkness. He's secured by nails and cannot escape, though he would not. He cries out to his father, but the heavens feel like brass. He feels the sense of forsakenness. God's arrows are turned against him as the one who became sin for us, while men taunt him and mock him. When he's offered wine to drink to dull the pain, he refused it so that he might endure the full depth of the bitterness of our suffering. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and to put him to grief. God did it. God ordained that this should happen. God's chosen one crushed. No valley of despair has ever run so deep, so dark, so painful as his. And yet he passed through it all for us. Trusting that his father will not cast off his own forever. That though he may cause grief, yet there is a tsunami of mercy and compassion that will follow. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame because he knew these words to be true. And the resurrection vindicates the son's confidence in the father's love. Grief is swallowed up by glory. And beloved, if you belong to Jesus by faith, then you are so joined to Jesus that you can be assured that you will not be cast off forever either. That though God may send grief, in far greater measure, he will have compassion. By his resurrection, Jesus shows the way to sufferers. He goes before us to show the way in the dark. The image that I have in mind here is of someone uh, in a cave and the cave gets uh, dark, it, it gets crowded, it gets small, and you send someone through to see, okay, if we keep going, what, will we make it through? Right? And then you suddenly, you hear someone call out from the other side, it's all clear, you can come through, there's light on the other side. Well, Jesus suffers for us, he suffers like us, and there's great solace in his sympathy. But his resurrection tells us something even greater. That there's light on the other side. 
that the way is clear. Though it looks dark and scary now, though the darkness seems like it will be here for a long time, it won't always be so. Suffering we experience when our world is turned upside down is real. There's no doubt about that. But it doesn't tell the full story. For that, we look to the character of God. We look to the promises of God. We look to the Son of God. His suffering with us, His resurrection for us, His guarantee to us. The Lord's compassion can be clung to even in the dark because He has shown us by His resurrection that there is light on the other side. And the Lord will not cast off forever. Great is His faithfulness. Let's pray. O Father in heaven, our experience in this world, fallen and under the curse of sin, is one that entails or uh, or involves much suffering and great pain. Lord, we each know that in our own way and in our unique circumstances. And Lord, we also know that the particular uh, uh, keen sense when it feels like our world is falling apart, when the bottoms come out, when we feel like we're coming undone, when we're overwhelmed, when we're in the valley of despair. Perhaps, Lord, some of us are there even now. And yet we thank you, Lord, for your word, which gives expression to our grief, but does more than that, does more than provide just a sympathetic voice. It's also a word that tells us that because of Jesus, his love for us, his suffering for us, his sympathetic ministry to us, that there is light on the other side, that grief will give way to glory. Lord, help us cling to this hope in faith by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.